Well, come on, church. Can we put our hands together and make everybody joining us at every single location feel good, feel welcome, and I'm so glad that you are here. I'm so glad that I'm here. I, come on, can I, can I get a witness from somebody? It's good to be in church, y'all. Well, I want you to know this. I want to look right at the camera, and I want you to look right at me, that I love you. I care about you. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you the last month. I've been away on vacation. I've been loving life. I've gone to the beach. I've seen all my friends and family members. But I'll tell you something. I went to church all around the country. There is nothing like being in the room at Two Rivers Church. Come on, turn to your neighbor. Tell them it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Just tap, tap them on the shoulder. If you're joining us online, I'm sorry, y'all. I, I love y'all, but it's tough noogies wherever you're at. You got to suffer through it. Type in where you're at or wherever you got to do, but you're missing it in the house of the Lord. I want to take a second. I want to honor all of the people who gave me a rest, all the team members, all the people who spoke and did such a fantastic job. The marriage segment, the three for 10, and then all the testimonies from the Hope Home and the business session, all of those different moments. Can we put our hands together and make them feel appreciated and loved? You guys did a phenomenal job. I got a chance to jump in online and see all of what was going on. And I am so proud of this church and what God is doing here in people's lives. It's one of the things I kept thinking about as I was away, as I would hear the different stories of people's lives, I kept thinking, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. There's something about your life that God's done in it that other people need to hear. That we can't bottle up in us what's happening in our life that we have to be vocal about it, we have to share it. Sometimes we feel like I can't be vocal, I can't tell somebody what's happening because I'm, I'd be a phony. I'm sort of messed up over here. And that's actually part of the grace of God that people need to understand is I'm not perfect. I'm not who I was though. I'm not yet who I wanna be, but I am not who I was. God is changing me, making me different. And as long as you can share that and share how God is developing us and changing us, you're going to make a difference in someone else's life. And so I want to have every one of us be encouraged in that. And then I want you to know this week, I've been praying for you every morning. We've been in 21 days of prayer and I've been actively seeking God together with this church for your life. So if you're sort of new here and you've never been part of the time of prayer or know what prayer is all about, you can join us at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. on Saturday, and then we have prayer one before the start of every Sunday experience. I want to invite everybody out to prayer one on Sundays because it's the big difference maker. I know the difference. When we've been praying hard in prayer one, it makes a big difference in my life and in the life of the church as we go through the Sunday experience. And so we believe it. We win the war in the supernatural and we see it together in the natural. Well, today we are starting up a brand new series. You joined us on a great, great day. What we're talking about in this series is who is God? Who is God? So you should have some notes. Note papers should have been handed out at every single location. If you didn't get 
those notes I want the ushers to come they're going to kind of come to the front of the room and then you just slip your hand up in the air real high and they're going to make sure that you get note paper and everybody will have a chance to follow along this series we're talking about who's God I think it's this really foundational question that maybe some of us uh, we assume we know the answer to who is God and I want us to take a couple of moments to have a foundation for the answer to this. This week, we're going to talk about how do we know that God even exists? I think it starts with a good question, like, who is God? Well, what are you talking about God? How do we know that God exists? And then the next week, we're going to talk about this question that, well, what is the Trinity? How do we explain this? God is in three persons and yet's one. And then we're going to talk about what makes God, God, to kind of close out this series together. So today, we are talking about how do we know that God exists? I want to pray. Jesus, I thank you for your church. I thank you that you gave your life for us out of love to demonstrate and save and wash and redeem. Jesus, I'm asking that right now you'd begin to use this time, these words, to open up a door of faith, that our foundations would be firm, that we'd know why we believe what we believe, and we'd know in whom we have believed. Reveal yourself to us in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, everyone together said... Come on, everyone together said, amen. Well, I grew up in a pastor's house. I, I was born in a family that went to church every single time. There was an opportunity for the church to be open. Even when my dad wasn't a pastor, we would go to church Sunday morning for Sunday school. Then we'd do church. Sometimes we'd do two services. Then we'd come back for Sunday night, do Sunday night church. Then we'd come on Monday, my mom would start organizing some things and doing some things. And then we come for Wednesday night, we'd do family night, and I'd go to Royal Rangers, which is like Boy Scouts for Assemblies of God kids. And then we'd come back maybe on a Saturday to do a work project or something like that. In church my whole life, no choice. It was wonderful. I loved being in church. But as I got older, somewhere along the way, someone said, you know, you're probably only a Christian because you were born in your family and in this country. Has anybody ever heard something like that? Like, hey, if you were born somewhere else, you wouldn't be a Christian. And the idea behind that is that you only think the way you think because of the region in the world that you're in. And it's just kind of random chance that you have the thoughts that you have, that the thoughts that you have don't have any significant underpinnings. And so interestingly, as I got older and I went off to college, I began to think about that and say, well, maybe I do only just think the way that I think because of where I was born. Is there a reason to believe in God other than the fact that I grew up and was always in church? And when you read through the Bible, the Bible doesn't make a defense for itself in the sense that it's not saying, here's why we know that God exists. 
So how do we know that God exists? Because for me, I mean, I, I feel like I need a foundation for my faith, a foundation because I feel like I'm driven by reason. I'm driven by evidence. I don't want to believe it without evidence. And we should never believe something without evidence for that. That's a powerful statement for a pastor to make. You, you need evidence for your faith. You need to have evidence. What happens is that we, every time you have a faith transaction, you have to run the iron ramp of reason before you make the leap of faith. Everyone does this. There's not a position in any belief system at all. Atheism has an on-ramp of reason, and then it makes a leap of faith. Christianity, on-ramp of reason, then makes a leap. There's always some ramp that we have to run before we do that. But I came to this question along the way as I was developing in really questioning, am I going to follow God? And I asked the question, why would I ever believe that a mind that I can't see, that I can't taste, that doesn't talk to me audibly, why would I ever believe in that? In other words, if I can't test it within the physical realm, why should I, why sh if I can't test it by the scientific process, why should I believe in the thing that I can't put my fingers on? So I went on a journey to discover the foundations of Christian faith in, in my own worldview. And I needed to see this thing for myself. And I hope that you're here today in the same condition. Don't just come to me and tell me that God exists. Come to me and give me evidence that God exists. We shouldn't believe anything unless there is evidence to support it. We can't believe just because our parents told us or because it's a comforting idea, like maybe you're going through a rough patch and you had this crutch that you could lean on and times of difficulty. Some people say that's what Christianity is all about. You just got a crutch. You, you're leaning on God. Well, we can't construct a worldview based on those ideas. There has to actually be some evidence for that. So I spent some time. I'd watch debates. I started reading books. I'd read what atheists had to say and what Christian apologists had to say. I'd watch these debates between guys like William Lane Craig and Anthony Flew, who's an outspoken, anti-God atheist. Not just that there is no God, but aggressively anti-God. That is a totally unreasonable position to have faith. So here's the question you're probably asking. If you can't sense with your five senses... God, how do you have any evidence for God? Do we actually have any? If we're going to talk about who is God, what is the evidence for God? So I want you to take out your notes, and I want you to sort of follow along here. Because what's, what's been interesting in this, as you begin to dig into this question, you're going to discover that science and philosophy, as we're moving forward... My assumption growing up was as we move forward in science and philosophy, we would actually have fewer proofs for God. 
that science and philosophy would lead us away from God. But interestingly, as we have moved forward in science and philosophy, all of a sudden there in my lifetime has been a multiplication of evidences for God. In fact, this guy, Anthony Flew, who was an outspoken, dedicated atheist who would debate Christians as he got later into life, his quote is, atheism is no longer logical, tenable, or defensible position to hold. He says that in his book that he writes, right at the end of his life, there is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. Anthony Flew says it like this, when the evidence points in a certain direction, we have to direct our lives in light of it. And so my invitation to us is to begin to file the evidence. So what we're going to do, really, is sort of like this idea of doing forensics. We have to kind of sift through the evidence and then figure out where the evidence points. Then the challenge for you and me is to adjust our lives in the light of that evidence. So let me give you a few evidences among several for the evidence of God. Alvin Plantinga, probably the greatest living philosopher today, has come out and said that there's about two dozen or so. There's maybe there's a few more than that, and they're continuing to come up. Evidences for the existence of God. Today we're going to primarily deal with three, and just on a very surface level, just so that you have some foundation to understand and know and have some understanding of evidence for God. Immanuel Kant, as quoted by Mary Gregory in Critique of Practical Reason from Cambridge University, says moral law, this is one of the best evidences of God, is the moral law and the starry hosts above. So I'll break that down for you. Number one, the evidence of morality. You can write that in, fill that in on blank in your notes, that an evidence for God is this idea that we have morality. The minute that you and I agree that rape is wrong, how many people say rape is wrong? I mean, there's a, probably at least 50% of the room here. It's good, good job. Well, there's a few more that put their hands up after I shamed them with that uh, how many think that killing children is wrong if I was to stick a gun to a child's head and pull the trigger? That sounds horrific. Actually, as I said that, I felt a revulsion. You might have felt a revulsion to that. So where did you get that revulsion? Where did you get that idea that we could agree on some basis? Maybe it's just cultural, that it was primed in you culturally. But across all cultures and all time, there's something called objective moral values. And kids have this. I just went on vacation, and, and the big thing in, on our vacation was who gets to sit in the back seat? And so my kids are trying to figure out the, a rotation to make it fair to split the amount of time for who gets to sit in that seat by themselves, because in the middle seat, they got to sit side by side. 
And so all vacation long, I'm sorting out what day, whose day is today? And is it fair? And who told my children? I did not tell them that there needed to be some sense of fairness about time in the back seat. We don't have to program this into our children. It comes wired in. That, that there's, who's telling them this? Is the universe telling them that they have to have equality or fairness? Is the universe telling us that rape is wrong, that robbery is wrong? It's not that robbery is wrong because we dislike it. We say that people who appreciate murder are wicked. Like if somebody's like, man, it's so great that you're going to murder children. That'd be wonderful. I'm repulsed by that. And it's not that it's because it's not wrong because I dislike it. It's wrong, and then I dislike it. There's an innate sense of that. And so this is what separates us from the animals. Like there's there, this thing, objective moral values, if we have those, then the reasoning goes that there must be an objective moral lawgiver. That actually God stitched this into our minds that he put it into us, that God put this into all of his creation. Romans 2 tells us that God put it in our consciousness, that gave a, God gave us a conscience. And, and people who don't have the Bible, they've never read the Bible before, know that adultery is wrong. And, and so God put that into our hearts and this is where evolutionary thinking falls short. Because there's no explanation for morality in evolutionary thinking according to the way we view morality. And I'm going to take a moment to try to illustrate this because they say, according to evolutionary philosophy, that our cognitive faculties or morality only evolved according to the decisions we had to make as animals. The problem with that is this, when a lion kills a giraffe, we don't say that lion murdered a giraffe. We say a lion killed a giraffe. And when a shark forcibly copulates with another shark, that's not called rape. We say that a shark forcibly copulated with another shark. At some point, that view, sort of a Im, amoral, no moral capacity, tips over to us as humans, and we have a different view. And I want to illustrate that like this, is that, that if I lived with an animal morality, according to what we see in the sort of evolutionary panorama, when I got hungry, if I walked off of this stage and came to someone on the front row struck them, murdered them, killed them, and then began eating them. I wouldn't be able to say, hey, well, I was hungry. It's my instinct. There's no morally wrong aspect to that. Why would I think, why should, why should you believe that that was wrong? 
All of the other animal kingdoms participate in that way. Why should there be any difference for me? Yet, even as I say that, intuitively we know that is distinctively wrong. That it is wrong for me because I'm hungry to go kill another human and eat them. And, and if I proceeded along an evolutionary framework, we have to work out the worldview to its full implications of its influence in our life. If there is no God, then what is morality? And interestingly, another idea of this or an example of the idea of morality as opposed to and would not have evolved from a, a evolutionary functioning Right now, in our culture, definitively, we would say racism is wrong. Can I get an amen? amen. That in no way is racism right. Yet, if we were to view this evolutionarily, that genocide, the elimination of some other group, so that my group can have more chance of survival is actually the survival of the fittest. That it would be evolutionarily viewed as a wonderful thing. If, we, if one group oppresses another group in order to gain advantage, then it benefits that other group. So whoever in, would be in power, would, we would everyone celebrate that. And yet, intuitively, we know that that is wrong. And we didn't have to read the Bible to know that. Yet it could not have, oh, it could not have sprung from evolutionary processes. It is absolutely counter to that debate. In fact, Richard Dawkins, when he's questioned about this, he's in a conversation with a guy named Justin Byerly, and he says, Justin Byerly says to Richard Dawkins, when you make a value judgment, don't you immediately set yourself outside of this evolutionary process and say that the reason this is good is because it's good. To which Dawkins replied, it could come from my evolutionary past. So Byerly then ultimately says that your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as having five fingers instead of six. And Dawkins says, yes. Here's the problem with that. No one lives like that. If that was true, this is inconsequential to me. I don't get upset about the fact that I don't have six fingers. It's a non-issue, it doesn't exist. Hopefully it's a non-issue for you. Yet as dispassionate about that, if we lived according to the evolutionary process, according to what we would hear here from Richard Dawkins, is that why should rape be any different? And we don't live that way. We have set in us. We have built in us a moral capacity 
that is in absolute conflict with the structure, the process, or engineering process that would be connected to evolution. And so you have to follow that worldview all the way through the implications of life. There, again, just another quick illustration of this. There's a, I'll, I'll skip it for a matter of time, but here's what Dr. Tim Keller says. How could that trait, how could morality have come down by a process of natural selection? Such people would have been less likely to survive and pass on their genes. In other words, the process of natural selection would ultimately pull those who believe in morality the way we do out of the gene pool. There is some supernatural standard of normalcy apart from nature by which we can judge right and wrong. So there's no un-Darwinian theory to the naturalists. But the human species is the only species that has consciousness. And someone would say, we, why do we have this? And Dawkins replies, I don't know. This idea of the moral argument Dawkins is left without an answer to. And, he, and when he says, I don't know, for him, it has become a faith position. He's run an on-ramp of reason, and he's made a jump to a conclusion that his worldview cannot fully support. And for the theist, the Bible has a way better way, a way better explanation than I don't know. We know in Romans 2 that God has put eternity in our hearts. He's put morality into our beings so that we understand these things. The clear evidence of all nature and all creation speak to them. We were created by God and he breathed his consciousness into us. So number two, the evidence of the universe is the evidence of the universe. Fill that in, universe. Here's what this really comes down to for the last several hundred years. It, we, we have this concept of causality. It's this idea that if something begins to exist, that it has to have a cause. So you go back a number of causes, like if there's a chair here, then how did that chair get there? Because I put that chair there. Well, who made the chair, and you keep going back and you'd follow an infinite number of cause to ultimately we begin to reduce everything all the way back down to one uncaused cause. And for hundreds, if not thousands of years, people would say, what was the first uncaused cause? And people would just say, well, there's no uncaused, like the universe always existed. So the universe always was, and so we have always existing. There was never a beginning to creation, and all of that we see, all the matter that we see, just always has been. Until 1929, when Hubble looked into a telescope and discovered that 15 billion years ago, there was an explosion. And that the universe had a beginning. And, and all the scientific community at that time rejected this hypothesis of Hubble because it smacked very closely of the theist. When the theist reads in the Bible and it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the universe. 
And so we, I read it this way. Someone said it like this. The number of stars involved in the galactic dispersal suggested an astoundingly vast universe. Some galaxies were millions of light years away. Hubble noticed that the planter in the of the planet and entire galaxies were hurtling away from one another at fantastic speeds. Moreover, space itself seemed to be getting bigger. The universe was not expanding into background space. This will boggle your mind. Incredibly, space itself was expanding along with the universe. What is space expanding into? I don't know. But we know that it's expanding and we know that it's moving out and that has in, incredible implications because how it did all of that begin? And so Hubble scientists realized right away that the galaxies were not falling apart because of some mysterious force thrusting them away from each other. Rather, they were moving apart because they were once flung apart by a primeval explosion. So here's this idea, the crux of the universe is that whatever begins to exist has to have a cause. The universe exists, therefore it has a cause. So what precedes that is that mind must pre-exist matter. This is, good. This is amazing. Because in Genesis and in John, we find out that God is spirit. That he didn't have physical body the way you and I have. Who is God? In essence, he pre-exists. And so the th second law of thermodynamics says that all energy is running down. And if the universe were eternal, then all energy would have already been consumed. It's not possible that the universe has existed eternally. So these implications to the scientific community were so startling. J.M. Weisinger writes it this way, to give in to the Judeo-Christian idea of a beginning of the world, so astounding, so, so scientifically incredibly rejected, yet here comes evidence that points to a beginning. He says it like this, it also seemed to have a call for an act of supernatural creation. It took time, observational evidence, and careful verification of the predictions made by the Big Bang model to convince scientific community to accept the idea of cosmic genesis a successful model that imposed itself on a reluctant scientific community. So the idea here, even Einstein, Einstein, he says toward the end of his life, one of his biggest regrets is holding on to a steady state model. And, and he's, he, he had an alternative motive. He had several th mathematical theories that the steady state model, his mathematical theories were supported by that and he had to give those up but he did so reluctantly this points to a creator and the reality is this the theists look at the big bang and say huh so genesis 1 1 
All along, in the beginning, God created the universe. And so somebody would say, if there's an initial cause, then gotcha, who created God? I've seen this on all the atheist chat threads. And if you believe in an initial cause, then who created God? It's a category mistake because I don't have to answer that. What we're talking about is evidence. We have evidence that there was the creation or the beginning of a universe. And that evidence leads us to the decision. But there's no evidence that God began to exist. And so what we have is we don't have to answer that question. We have this other category that we understand that there is a supernatural beyond. There has to be more. So we aren't this, like they, we, people would try to illustrate a Christian as these podunk, drooling people saying, God exists because he helps me to sleep. We have evidence for the start of the universe. There's no evidence that we don't have to show that God started. So then, then if we say this, how then did the Big Bang occur? And we put this question right back in the court of the atheists who say there is no God. And the most popular theory of the atheist is the nothing theory. And it goes something like this. How did the Big Bang begin? What caused it? The answer is nothing. Now tell me what's reasonable and rational. That's the laziest argument I've ever come up. This is the argument you make when it's late at night and your wife hears a thud downstairs and she says, go check it out. And you're tired. And you answer her. She says, what was that? And you say, come on, everybody. You say, nothing. It was certainly something. But I don't want to deal with the implications of that. I don't want to have to deal with Pastor Andrew's bat. It's a lazy argument. And, and so we know there's no rational Thing. In fact, Francis Collins says it this way. The Big Bang cries out for an explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. This is a strong argument. This is strong evidence for God. Number three, I'm going to have the team come back. We'll finish up here. Is the evidence of design. So the, the basics, basic idea here is that if you see a pyramid, you understand that it didn't come by natural processes. That there's shape and there's a certain functionality. Didn't get there by accident. And, and Carl Sagan says this. He says the equivalent of 20 million books is inside the heads of every one of us. That you are so complex. You are so radically, incredibly designed. The equivalent of 20 million books is inside the heads of every one of us. 
The neurochemistry of the brain is astonishingly busy. The circuitry of a machine more wonderful than any devised by humans, the best design we've ever done, doesn't compare. It doesn't come close to the circuitry of the brain. And so the, the information over time doesn't become more defined, it becomes more random. So as time moves on, we would have not the organizing of things that would lead us to think about design. Over time, you would have the deconstruction of things. The things become more random. It'd be like dropping out of a helicopter 20 million letters, hoping they would all land on the page and write you a book. Over time, the letters would just begin to expand out and you'd have chaos everywhere. And in comparison, the likelihood of something like the Big Bang is 10 to the 138th power, the astronomical conditioning that is needed, just for context, because no one has any idea what 10 to the 138th power is. I think there's a graphic you see on the screen, I think there's 138 zeros. Just for context, 10 to the 70th power is considered to be all of the atoms in the universe. And so we're, we're just, the, the astounding unlikeliness or the, the conditions that are required for the Big Bang to even exist, the physics, laws of physics require that there be 122 parameters in exact fine-tuning. These things were designed, they had to be put in place. Stephen Hawking says it like this, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in one 100,000 million millionths, the universe would have recollapsed before it reached its present size into a hot fireball. The odds against something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there's religious implications. So you have to say that this is so astronomically difficult that someone had to monkey with it. And, and we have these 122 physical laws that had to be in place even before the Big Bang, which is a, a philosophical anomaly if, if you believe in naturalism because the Big Bang itself would... Paul says that there be any possibility of anything. And so these laws had to pre-exist. And someone asked, where did these physical laws come from? And they said, well, we don't have a Darwin of physics yet. So this incredible complexity had to be explained in some way. They came up with the multiverse theory. Maybe you've watched the Marvel movies and there's a multiverse. The problem with the multiverse is... And the idea behind a multiverse is what if there was an infinite amount of universes popping in and out of existence? Then you, could, then you could have all of these 122 physical laws sort of randomly happenstance take place. The problem with that is scientifically, we know that there is not a multiverse. 
And yet, interestingly, because of the incredible complexity of that, people would rather believe in an unproven multiverse as the explanation of the first cause or the explanation for design than the Christian explanation that there's an origin of the universe because the God of all creation, the God who has supreme intelligence, said in the beginning, let there be light in everything came into existence. Rather than believe in that God, people would rather believe in an infinite amount of uncaused metaphysical realities that there are no evidences for except this one particular reality. And that's why Anthony Flew said this at the end of his life, that there is a God and that it's irrational now to believe in atheism. And over time, as you consider the evidences for God, it becomes more and more rational. That's why I went on the journey to discover what do I believe? And I said, this is the most rational thing. Why would I ever believe in a mind that I can't see, that I can't taste, that doesn't talk to me audibly? Why would I ever believe in him? Because I'm driven by reason and evidence. There's a whole pile of these reasons you can go look up. In philosophy, and as philosophy and science goes deeper, and it continues to find more and more evidence, ultimately we come to one conclusion. You have to run the on-ramp of reason, and then at some point, you have to make the leap of faith. My invitation is that you would find God. Let me pray with you. Jesus, I pray right now for every heart and every life that we would understand you more, that we would do all we can to discover you and who you are. God, I pray that you reveal yourself to us. I pray for every skeptic that they would lean into their skepticism even more, that they would lean into the skepticism, be skeptical about being skeptical. That there would even be something deeper that would unfold and be revealed as we pursue the evidence. I believe you'll reveal yourself to us. You'll reveal yourself to everyone today. In Jesus' name, amen.